So this morning I have a message here that uh, maybe it's just a little different title and I, I trust if you don't understand it right away you will before we uh, wrap up this message and the title is Incremental Acculturation and I think most of you know what increment is, it, it's, it's changes and, and the brother mentioned this morning that we don't like changes but there's some uh, certain type of changes that the carnal heart does like, and we want to talk about that here this morning. Uh, acculturation simply has to do with adapting to the culture around us. To, to be, uh, well, there's a the word acclimation, where we uh, adapt to the, the climate. And I remember looking back about eight years, we had lived uh, close to seven years in, in the Anta Valley of Peru is a very beautiful place. Uh, you look up from where we're at, 11,000 feet, and there's some peaks about 20,000 feet above sea level, and, and they're covered with snow all the time. They're glaciers because it's up there where it doesn't get warm enough for that snow to melt. And so living at 11,000 feet, uh, there's extreme low humidity, and that time of year of June was the coldest time as we were on the other side of the equator. And it uh, didn't get above 70-some degrees. And, and we moved into Lancaster County right in the middle of summer. It was extremely humid and sweltering hot. Uh, and I was working with my brother-in-law. We went up into the attic. There was uh, some of the, the rafters up there were too long for for what they were needing to support. And, and so we put a, a knee wall in there to, to support the the rafters, and it was probably, I didn't have a thermometer, maybe 130 degrees up there. And so I had been six plus years in a place where I hardly ever sweated because it was just, just that way. And maybe my body didn't know how to sweat when it was that extremely hot. But I, I thought I was okay. We had grown up uh, doing tobacco in Lancaster County, and, and we went up in the peak and hung that stuff up there in, in the middle of August. And so I was pretty tough, I thought. But anyway, uh, I came out of that attic uh, feeling like I was going to black out and was going to lose it. And I realized I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. And so there, there wasn't a lot of acclimation that took place from the Anta Valley in Peru to, to sweltering uh, Pennsylvania in the middle of the summer. Uh, so that's maybe getting off a little bit where we're at. We're, we're looking at acculturation where you have a people and, and you like to, you don't like to be a misfit, okay? That, that's something that's within us. And I remember growing up as Old Order Mennonite, Lancaster County, and their parents, uh, for whatever reasons they chose at that time, it was a common thing, they chose to send us to public school. And we were so different, and it, it was uncomfortable to be different. I, I, there's some things that it, my heart rebelled to do because we were put into a very different culture in, in the public school setting. And that was a difficult thing for me. So what does God want for his people this morning? I wanted to look at that a little bit. Before we get into some more of what acculturation looks like, uh, if you would turn with me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. 
And, and Exodus 19, as you're turning there, I'll uh, try to redeem the time. It was just immediately after they had been called out of Egypt. There have been 430 years in, in this land where they were very much, I think, being acclimated or acculturated into a very heathen nation, which was Egypt. And Egypt, I think, uh, is very much a type of the world, and Pharaoh is very much a type of Satan, as we, we look at that. So God had this plan, even before they went to Egypt, to call them out of there. And what I see here in Exodus 19 is, is God revealing to his people something very precious. This, this is, could I say it this way, this is getting to the intimate part of the heart of God for his people, as he shares here. And I'd like to read uh, maybe the... Uh, First eight verses here in Exodus 19. In the third month, when the children of Israel were come forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come into the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall thou say to the house of Jacob, and Tell the children of Israel, I have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and I bear you up on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words which thou shalt speak to the children of Israel. And Moses came and called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So we have a beautiful picture. This is my plan for you. This is what I want. This is... Your calling that I'm giving you. You're going to be a holy people. You're going to be a peculiar, a special treasure to me. I want you for myself. We'll get back to that a little later. Uh, there is teaching out there. It's called the Incarnation Principle. I don't know how many of you have heard of that. It's the idea that Christ came down from heaven. He was the son of God. He was up in heaven. He came down. He became a man. He became a Jew. And he became like the people. Now, just, just bear with me. He became like the people. Uh, he became one of them, like unto his brethren, okay? And so the idea is, and I've been involved with missions for 30-some years the idea is that when we go and take the gospel into a certain culture, a certain people group, that we become as they are. And so that's the incarnation principle. Incarnation is God becoming man. The incarnation principle that Christ came and became one of us. And so we're taking the gospel to people and uh, we in a sense, become like them. 
Now, uh, bear with me. I want to clarify that a little further down he the road here. I already mentioned we're social beings, and we like to be accepted. We, we like for others to like us, and, and we like for others to accept us as we are. And being different isn't always easy. It isn't always pleasant for us. There's also this thing of culture shock. Uh, when I was uh, 25 years of age, I, I moved to Guatemala. And I grew up in Lancaster County. We were horse and buggy people. Uh, a horse and buggy, you don't usually travel more than about 10 miles or so at a time. And so I did not get outside of Lancaster County hardly at all. I did have a brother living in Wisconsin, which I'd gone a few times. But basically, I grew up in a very small, uh, should you say, worldview or, or concept of what is out there. And of course, we were uh, spared some of the influences, and we'll get into that a little later, of what um, the rest of the world looks like. We, we were isolated people in a sense. I was at that point. And so I get dropped into Guatemala, very different culture, very different way of uh, doing things. And uh, it, there's what is called culture shock, where it just, uh, my oldest son just recently moved to Guatemala, and, and of course he had grown up there. Wasn't a whole lot of culture shock for him, I don't think, but his wife grew up in Lancaster County, or Chester County, right outside of Lancaster County, and the letter she just sent out recently, I could tell, you know, you know there's a lot of dirt around, and the, it's, uh, the people's way of doing things is different, and then you have to process that, and you have to figure out what to do with it. There's uh, nothing wrong with meat and potatoes and shoe fly pie and apple pie and all those things. And I grew up with that and I just thoroughly enjoy it. There's also nothing wrong with tortillas and tamales and black beans and rice and uh, the chicken and all the different seasonings that go into that. But at first, I just did not enjoy it. I just didn't. I, some people maybe just can make that change and everything's just good. And you can add to that intestine soup and cow stomach and some of those things. Oh, uh, and all those things that I mentioned that are different from what I grew up with, I just thoroughly enjoy, including intestine soup if it's done right. But it didn't happen right away. And there's some things about culture that are amoral. If you understand what I mean by amoral, am means it's not amoral, it's not here or there. It's not right or wrong. And for the most part, the way we eat, even the houses we live in, uh, is, is amoral. It's not any more right or wrong to eat potatoes than it is to eat rice and beans. It's just a difference in what people had and, and what they grew up with and what they learned to enjoy from little on up. And so it's not really right or wrong. And I think 
if, if any of you are thinking of going into a farm field or even somewhere different in the United States, the more we can accept and appreciate and enjoy the way that the, in the amoral things, the things that aren't right and wrong, the way people do it, the more we can, the better we can relate to them. Where they know that you thoroughly enjoy what they put before you. And that's important. And I, in that sense, I am 100% with the incarnation principle that if we can become like the people, uh, we can be effective in a way that we can't. Uh, and I have been guilty of this, and I think many missionaries have, where we become critical, and we just think their way of doing things is so backwards and so out of place, and our way of doing things is, is so much better. And that that attitude can come across, and it can be a very ineffective way of helping people come to know the Lord. Now, there was a lot of things when we went into Guatemala and also when we went into Peru that are not amoral about the culture. Uh, there was family feuds that went on. There was tremendous practice of witchcraft and, and powerful things that went on around us in that. There was drunkenness. There was uh, what they called the white weapons. With the area we lived in Guatemala was the most famous, I think, of all Guatemala for that. It, they get to having their parties and they get to drinking and then there's these feuds that go between this family and this family and when they when they get bold with the, the influence of the alcohol, then machetes come out, which you always had on their side, and people get chopped up. And we've seen it over and over and over. And so the, the music that they listened to and, and the idol worship, they would go, they had up on top of the hill right above our place, they had this little building, and they had this building full of idols. It wasn't where they normally had their worship service. They had that on up the hill on the other side of us. But they would get these idols and they had a platform and they, they put some images along the way and they would uh, get these and they'd take them on their platform and they'd stop and they'd make prayers to this image and they'd go on to the next. And th that type of acculturation was not attractive to us. It wasn't really a problem. We did not appreciate that and we understood how wrong it was. And we had fortunately uh, praise God, we had some people that came to understand that and they repented and, and, and stopped that type of, of lifestyle. And so, there's way people dress. It's, it's, there's a lot of different things come into what we call culture. And there's more recently, there's been some teaching about warm culture and cold culture. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. A warm culture is the idea that people are friendly and they have time to just pass the time of day. Well, time isn't really that important. The relationships are. And so, uh, and, and to us, time was important. We make a, an agreement with someone at a certain time we're going to meet. And so we're there at that time, and then time's important. We're losing time. Time is valuable, and this is becoming uh, inefficient here, and we're waiting, and the people don't show up. In a culture, especially in Peru, maybe more than Guatemala, you come to a place where you knew that there were 90-some percent chance you're going to be late. And 
there can be good sides of that culture. Maybe some of the reason it's late, they met someone they hadn't seen for a while, and they're just going to stop and talk a while, and they're going to uh, build relationships. Another is, uh, in, in their culture, they had the idea that if you're honest with people and you're going to tell them, no, I can't make it, then you're going to offend that person. So you're going to say, yeah, we're going to be here at such, such and such a time, and you knowing perfectly well you're not even planning to be there at that time. But because you think it's going to be offensive, to be honest, then you're going to just say it different than it's really going to be, and, and, and nobody's going to offend anybody. We know that doesn't work either. But that's the culture. That's the way people relate to one another. And you have to, if you're going to be part of it, you're not going to fight it, but you're going to accept it, that, that this is just the way it is, and, and we'll work with it. And, of course, we don't want to become like them, and I found myself struggling not to do that, where we, we, no one else is going to be there in time, so why should I bother? That type of thing. So that's a warm culture idea where, where we, uh, we have time for each other. We can take two hours off for lunch, and we'll have our siesta and all that, and, and uh, relationships matter more than time, and, and, and so on, which isn't wrong in itself. And there's, of course, issues that are a little more in the gray. Hygiene, is it important? Is it, is it good to have a concrete floor where you maybe even put a towel on where you can get a mop in there and clean it? Or you're going to have a dirt floor and the pigs are going to come in and they, you know, pigs and chickens do, you know, there's, there's, there's dirt in there and people are sick. Uh, it's not really maybe necessary completely moral things and yet there's there's definitely some value in teaching a, a, a higher standard in, in those areas. Not necessarily completely right or wrong in themselves. So we see, going back to Exodus 19, we see that God clearly commanded them, and maybe we'll turn now to Judges chapter 2. We have Joshua, and Joshua was a faithful servant of God. People followed his leadership for the most part. Uh, and, and there was blessing in doing that. But Joshua himself failed to completely carry out God's commands because God knew that if those heathen nations, the Canaanites, were not done away with, that that culture that was left behind was going to affect them, okay? And so, here in, in Judges chapter 2, I'm going to read here the first a number of verses. Judges 2, 1. An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall, you shall throw them down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but you shall be as they shall be as thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, 
the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of the place, spoke to him, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord that he had done in Israel. Jumping down to verse 11, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. So what we see here is, uh, if we would have re read the latter part of Genesis chapter 1, there was a number of, of uh, people groups of the Canaanites that they have been specifically told that they were supposed to do away with them, but they didn't. They made league with them. And the reason God wanted them to be done away with because he said they're going to be thorn in their side and they're going to, their gods are going to be a snare. They're going to be a trap. They're going to be their downfall, which is exactly what happened. If you read through the book of Judges, it's just one failure after the next. These people ad adapted the ways of the people around them and it destroyed them. And we could mention, too, about uh, Balaam. If you know the story about Balaam, I'm not going to turn there, but we have there numbers where uh, Balak wanted Balaam to come to curse Israel. Okay? He, his, in his mind, if Israel could be cursed, then it could be stopped. And uh, Balaam, in a sense, was following God, and he, he said he, will, he can only bring what the word of the Lord is. And, and he blessed Israel time and time again. But you know what Balaam did after that? He went into Israel and he counseled them to intermarry with the heathen people that were around them. And those, that intermarriage, that intermingling that happened there was, in a sense, a tremendous curse for Israel. So what, what he set out to do, that Balak wanted him to do, he ended up getting done through their uh, following his advice and in, in intermingling with, with the heathen people around them. Okay, moving ahead here this morning, the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, if I'm saying that right, uh, which simply ek means out, and ecclesia is, is a calling, and putting those two words together is a calling out. So that's what the word church means. If you're part of church of Part of the Church of Jesus Christ this morning, you have been called out. You're, we're a called out people. That's what God called us out to do. And uh, that's what we're here about this morning. And talking about incremental now, just a little bit. Don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but it has the idea of uh, increments is, is oftentimes small. You can count uh, by increments of two, two, four, six, eight, ten, and so on. It's, it's changes in, in, in numbers. And the reason that word incremental is in there is because those changes often are small. There are changes that do not happen from overnight. There's changes that over the, uh, a period, uh, oftentimes a period of years, uh, things change. And, and it, we're, we're looking at, when we're talking about acculturation, we're looking at changes that are not good. So it's slow, steady, incremental changes to adapt to the way that the culture around us is doing it. And I could preach to you some more this morning about the dangers of the, 
Latin American culture of Guatemala or Latin American culture of Peru, and there are some differences and some similarities. But that's not really what we're up against this morning. And so that's not what I want to spend the rest of my time talking about. We look at North American culture around us, what does it look like? And how is it affecting us? And this morning, I believe it's a matter of life and death. And we accept that. And I see possibly a little bit North American culture a little different than some of you because I had the opportunity of spending 20 some years outside and kind of being an onlooker, which makes it look different than if you just grew up in it and, and are accustomed to it in that way. And there's some other people here also that have spent some time outside of North America and, and have a little bit different perspective. I would say if I was really trying to wrap up what North American culture looks like, and we're looking at negative sense of it, it's, it's a very self-indulgent people. And, and in a sense, I look at cultures around the world that are not, they're, they're not born again, transformed by the power of Christ, and it's going to be that way always. But we have an affluence here that the world has never known before. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not. In a general way, the affluence, the ability to, to lay hold on earthly possessions is greater for us as a people than has ever been before in the world. I'm not talking about elite people like kings, etc., but in a general, the general populace of people. We were just on our way down. My wife said, well, we just never traveled. I said, well, there really wasn't money to travel like we have now. That's a reality. Uh, that self-indulgence comes out in different ways. And one is idolatry. And, and North America is a very idolatrous nation. And we don't have what we had in, in Guatemala or Peru and other parts of Latin America where we see people bowing down before uh, images. Uh, I know it happens, and it's happening more and more as, as people are moving away from God. But it's not something that's just out there in the open like you would some other places. And we've, we've seen uh, in Peru some extremely, extremely uh, serious idol worship, and then it's uh, so up front, so, so bold. The idol worship of North America is very subtle, and it has to do with sports. Yeah. I don't know where you're at. I know where my heart was at before I was serving God. It has to do with even the sports of hunting. Now, hunting, I, I don't see as wrong in itself because I enjoy venison. And the venison is very good meat. But the, the, the lines can come fast become very gray. And it can become, and it was for me, it was tremendous idolatry. So I found for the most part it's easier to just, just walk away from it. 
recreation. There again, recreation is not wrong, and it, it's, I, I think there's a place, it's a blessing to maybe just take a day off and go and, and do something special with the family. But the lines become so blurred and so gray where right and wrong starts and stops. And I, I throw in the principle of stewardship, which I think is a principle that many, many of our people have lost, where do I spend the money on myself and I can, I can buy this half a million dollar rig where I can travel the country and all I'm doing is indulging, indulging, indulging the whole way through. And I'm teaching my children to do the exact same thing as we're about it. Pets. It's, I think, you know, we grew up with some dogs on the farm, some cats. The pet, cats weren't so much pets, they kept the rats at bay, and the dogs did some too, but that's not where North America's at. And I see situations where there's half a dozen horses that are eating tons and tons of hay, and what are they there for? And I'm not saying it's wrong to own a horse. I used to own one, but I used to use it for transportation also. And in Guatemala, horses were not pets. They, they had fields that were steep like this, and they, they gathered it in bundles, and they tied it on, on the horses' backs, and that's how they got their corn out. That's how they got their firewood. Those horses were very much needed animals. And it used to be that way here, but for the most part, it's not anymore. Value system, you drive down the road and you see all this shiny metal and, and, and it's something about me. And it's something about this 600 horsepower engine that's in the hood out front there. It just makes me feel good. And I, I am somebody. That is idolatry. And I'm not saying there's not a place for a 600 horsepower engine if, if you need it for, for what you're work and your job is. I, I did operate a bulldozer and it was amazing the amount of dirt you could push with, uh, with some horsepower behind it. And that's a blessing. Education, and this isn't just in North America, we found it wherever we went, but somehow that if we can get people with a college degree, they're gonna somehow make it in things that I haven't. And, and there again, the college degree isn't necessarily where the problem is, but the influences that have come with it. And we'll, we'll get to this a little later, what happened in looking back 100-some years ago in, in Mennonite culture. And we're going to talk about that a little bit yet here this morning. But the people that saw the dangers in, in that system and had pulled away from it, now we see the next generation or the following one where they're going down the same route. There was a brother, this we have moved back from Peru, as a brother, a sincere brother, and I don't think the question was necessarily a challenging one. He had a co-worker, and this co-worker did not necessarily adhere to the doctrine of being a called out people. And they were evangelical people and they were very active in missions. And this brother just asked the question, is all this stuff we're doing really necessary? I said, brother, I want to tell you something. I said, what, what is being practiced in those circles is 
a package deal. I said, you, you think this, this distinctiveness that we practice is important, but you can go and join yourself with where they're at, and you look at where their homes are really at, the broken homes and, and, and the whole, it's all one package. And if you think you can lay this aside and not get the rest of the culture that, that uh, was being portrayed there with this other group, uh, you're mistaken. Back in the 70s, the, some of my older brothers, uh, we were old order, which that movement had pulled out of the conference back at around 1900. But uh, some of my older brothers, they were involved with the progressive movement that was very much going on in the 60s and 70s. And they, they found themselves with the latest technology at that time was not real uh, new anymore, but radio and then television. And he brought that stuff right into his home and I think people that were at all awake, at all uh, discerning, saw what that would do. But some of my older brothers did not and, and they brought that into their home. And I see just how it has changed the culture of his family which is so, so distinctive from, from the culture I want for, for my family. And then I, I don't know for sure, but I can make some predictions probably what that, I'm talking about my nieces and nephews, what, what their children and what that generation is going to look like as they go down the road. I mean, it, it's just a set pattern that we can figure out. It really is. And why did it not matter to bring all this trash into the refuge of the home? And I, I think I know what the answers to that was. There was, um, there was some things that were attractive in, in bringing that technology into the home. But it was attractive to the flesh, I could say. So we have the technology revolution, which is, is a fast-moving uh, thing that's going on in, in the culture we live in and in the whole world. Here back, I'm, I'm going to say maybe it's four years or so, I was asked to, to do a series of meetings, actually weekend meetings in southern Mississippi. And the first day we got there, uh, the brother, one of the church leaders there, one of the ordained, had us, uh, we had a meal with him. And he asked me this question. He said, it's a conservative Mennonite church it's a stage set, maybe I don't have the word exactly like he asked. It's the stage set for the conservative Mennonite church for another major apostasy. And I said, well, define what you're asking. What, what do you mean by major? And he was referring back to what happened in the uh, general Mennonite groups back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, so we, we shared a little bit what we were observing. And, and his one observation was he said he feels like a lot of what is being practiced in our churches, there's not a lot of conviction for the practice. So, so some of the practice is still there, but the conviction for why it's being done isn't, uh, in his mind, wasn't where it should have been. Now, I was looking at something else, and, and this, 
I'm not sure just, just how to share all this here this morning. But I see, okay, so internet something that in my lifetime has come into effect. And, and just very recently it got stuck into the pocket. Uh, and I see just in a sh few short years how that has affected uh, our values, the way we relate, how we uh, communicate, socialize, etc. And I have been very concerned, very, very concerned. And I think I'm not alone in that. I've been concerned that we haven't been more concerned, if I could say it that way. I remember I was at RIA meetings back a few years back, and a, a brother shared a, a message on uh, the effects of technology, and uh, I won't go into the details of that message, but it's another brother that was uh, a brother I appreciate a lot. He's in the ministry there at Mid-Atlantic Conference, and he said, Brother, I'm concerned that the effects that digital technology is having, is that the results of that is going to be a price far, far more dear than we want to pay. And I said, brother, I'm with you on it. So these are the things we're facing. And, and one of the bigger things, I think, with this digital technology is that the influences that were out there and the people that were, I would consider alert, said, no, this isn't for us. But now it has become what is called a tool that people hardly know how to live without. And the very matters that were a big concern of the influences that it could bring are now amongst us, very much amongst us. So this morning, as I share some of these burdens, I'd like to give a call for leaders. When I say leaders, I'm not just talking about uh, church leaders, but definitely talking to church leaders, but also fathers in the home. Can we have a vision that says this and this is what's happening, and this is the course we want, and this is what we have to do to be able to make sure we end up where we want to be? That's what I see a vision. There's some beautiful values that I represented this morning. Probably not a lot of broken home situations. But if you go into the evangelical world that's out there, you will find, you know, I didn't study into this, I'm just going by some of the statistics that, that I see and, and read and hear about that there's not a lot of difference between an unprofessing uh, culture out there and the so-called uh, professing Christianity culture of evangelical uh, Protestantism or whatever. In other words, the broken home situation and the struggles and, and all that that goes with it, that there's not a lot of difference. And this morning we have a lot of difference. And yet, as, as we could see the effects of culture and the changes that are taking place, uh, it could be that those very same serious struggles that are out there could be amongst us.
There's one other thing I thought I'd throw into this. I was reading just very recently, J.C. Wanger did some writing back uh, 60, 70 years ago. And there's one book he wrote, Even Unto Death. And he was looking at 16th century Anabaptists. And he, he, I made a copy of the page where he gave six important doctrinal differences were between Zwingli and, and the Swiss brethren, Conrad Gravel, Felix Mons, and those where they did not come out the same. And uh, that's a message in itself, and I, I can't get into the details of it this morning, but if someone wants to know more about it, I, I would think sometime I'd love to preach a message on that. And, and it has to do, I think, if I want to wrap it up, the, it's centered around the two kingdom principle, where we're the kingdom of God and then the, the, the kingdoms of this world and how that all fleshes out. And it also has to do with freedom of conscience, whether the government should have the right to dictate how the church should and shouldn't do things or whether the church decides those matters for themselves. And I see in the two kingdom principle where we have God giving government authority in their jurisdiction and we have the church and authority in their jurisdiction. And here again, I get myself in hot water, but with this whole uh, virus, the COVID thing, some of that has, has become really blurred, just where the lines start and stop with that. But God ordained the church, and the, he has men that are called to be leading out in that and their jurisdiction. It has to do with a called out people and calling people into that called out people. And the other is simply a government that is to punish evildoers and to charge taxes and to maintain order, that type of thing. That's their jurisdiction. And whenever you have the two crossing over each other, you have chaos. And so that, that is where Conrad Gravel, Felix Mons, George Blarock, some of them, where they, God somehow gave them a discernment to see. And so the, the issue wasn't really whether you should dump water on infant babies. It was whether someone would choose on their own to follow Christ and, and, and uh, be, as an adult or as a young adult, be trained into the ways of Christ. It was very important to them. But I bring that into this message this morning when I see there's, there's a drift towards adapting the ways of evangelical Christianity and not necessarily seeing that those same differences are still there and they're, they're more subtle. They're not as clear as they used to be. And, and I could bring in this, this concept of, of being involved, even emotionally, maybe not physically, but emotionally involved with politics. That is the other kingdom. And, and when we get involved and we get uh, even throwing our opinions around of the rights and wrongs of all that, we have already crossed some lines that are, are very dangerous. I'd like to just uh, look at some principles again this morning. The, the incremental acculturation where the, the culture around us is definitely, it's a pressure, it's, it's a mold. And uh, let's start here. We're going to go through a series of scriptures here to to finish up this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the heart of God for the subject. Uh, there's probably a number of us here this morning that could uh, 
quote these by memory, but they're very important. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it says, don't be pushed into the mold that, of the culture around you, because it's a lost culture. It's an abomination to God. And if we adapt their practices, then, then, then we will find ourselves on a road where we lose what is important. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light and dark with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell in them, and they will and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. A clear call to come out from amongst the fallen culture around us. James 4.4. 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not the friendship of the world's enmity with God? Where, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. This morning, who wants to be an enemy of God? First Peter 1, 14 to 17. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because that is, as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. If ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Revelation 18, 1-7a. Revelation 18, 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become an habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. 
for much she had glorified herself and lived deliciously. We'll stop reading there. So this morning, to wrap things up, the will of God is very clear for his people. We're a called-out people, and uh, that's every aspect of life. And I think this morning, the focus is not so much, okay, this is what they're doing, so if they're doing this, we're going to do this. It's to focus on God, to see his holiness and, and his, the purity and, and his longing for a people that are, are precious and, and longing to live holy lives and, and wanting to be like a holy God. And we focus on him and we love him and we worship him and we, we serve him and, and that stuff out there is not going to draw our attention. I will call for a song, then we'll turn the time over to Brother for closing. <laughs>